Bible reading comes from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 7, and it's on page 1146 of the Bibles in front of you. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Thanks, Mitch and uh, Justin. Again, it's good to be with you in church together on Mother's Day. Hey, a couple of quick things from me before we get underway. Number one, you might be thinking, I'd love to read a good book on uh, marriage. So I've got two suggestions for you. Um, first one is a book by Timothy Keller from New York City called The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, this is an excellent book and I reckon you could knock that over in uh, like easily a week. Uh, lots of useful stuff, not so much uh, about the, the real nitty-gritty everyday sort of stuff, but really helpful stuff, kind of foundational um, teaching on marriage, which I think would benefit you if you are a married person to have a read of that. Same thing goes for this one. It's called Married for God by Dr. Christopher Ash. Um, more of a British background, if you think the Americans are you know, too American, whatever your problem is, uh, this would be an excellent one to read. And if you would like uh, a copy of either of those, why don't you write that on the Connect card that you would have had in your bulletin and pop it in the, um, the collection bags when they come around at the end and I'll be able to get in touch with you and let you know how to get a copy of those. Secondly, um, there are some seminars that are kind of coming up in the next little bit that might be useful to you and your family on this sort of topic. So Marilyn Buckley, who's one of our... Uh, you know, epic five o'clock church members runs seminars for kind of parents who's teenage, who've got teenagers or kids who are about to become teenagers on the whole area of helping them negotiate the topic of sex in a really smart way. That'll be coming up in a couple of Tuesdays' time. Again, if you want details about that, put that on your Connect card and I can make sure you get the details you need. And uh, there will additionally be some marriage enrichment courses being run in June. Not so much out of St. Matthews, but um, we can give you some details of that. If you think, yeah, I think our marriage could do with a tune-up, I'd be very happy to give you some details. Again, write it on the Connect card. I'm going to pray. We're going to get down to business. It's going to be good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, your goodness to us in marriage. And uh, Lord, we thank you especially for your goodness to us in giving us your scriptures that teach us about all things. And Lord, we just pray, regardless of our station in life, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to change, that we might worthily magnify the name of your beautiful son, Jesus. Amen. Folks, I'm conscious as we come to this particular topic that we're in different circumstances, aren't we? Some of us are happily married. Some of us might be unhappily married for a variety of reasons. 
Some of us are happily single or unmarried and some unhappily single or unmarried, again, for a variety of reasons. Nevertheless, there is value in us all hearing what God says on the topic of sex and marriage, especially when both sex and marriage are such important features of life and culture and the world that we inhabit. So it's worth us being here. I came across this uh, excerpt of a newsletter. You'll get a kick out of this. Um, from someone called Ruth Smithers of the Madison Institute. I think it's American. She was the wife of uh, the Reverend L.D. Smithers. And this is what she wrote in her newsletter in 19, uh, sorry, 1894. <clears throat> to the sensitive young woman who has had the benefits of a proper upbringing, the wedding day is ironically both the happiest most terrifying day of her life. On the positive side, there is the wedding itself. On the negative side, there is the wedding night, during which the bride must pay the piper, so to speak, by facing for the first time the terrible experience of sex. At this point, dear reader, let me concede one shocking truth. Some young women actually anticipate the wedding night ordeal with curiosity and pleasure. But one cardinal rule of marriage should never be forgotten. Give little, give seldom, and above all, give grudgingly. Otherwise, what could have been a proper marriage could become an orgy of sexual lust. On the other hand, (laughs) on the other hand, the bride's terror need not be extreme. While sex is at best revolting and at worst rather painful, it has to be endured and has been by women since the beginning of time and is compensated for by the monogamous home and the children produced through it. Faint illness, sleepiness and headaches are among the wife's best friends in this matter. Arguments, nagging, scolding and bickering also prove very effective if used in the late evening about an hour before the husband would normally commence his seduction. Just as she should be ever alert to keep the quantity of sex as low as possible, the wise bride will pay equal attention to limiting the kind and degree of sexual contacts. If he attempts to kiss her on the lips, she should turn her head slightly so that the kiss falls harmlessly on her cheek instead. If he attempts to kiss her hand, she should make a fist. There is one heartening factor for which the wife can be grateful, and that is the fact that the husband's home, school, church, and social environment have been working together all through his life to instill in him a deep sense of guilt in regards to his sexual feelings, so that he comes to the marriage couch apologetically, filled with shame, already half-cowed and subdued. Doesn't that summarize the basic Christian view of sex? (laughs) Even if it's necessary for the sake of rearing children, it's essentially dirty. And if it must be endured, then at the very least, we ought to minimize the incidence of sex and the passion of sex. If he attempts to kiss her hand, make a fist. And above all, it's something shameful. And you know what? That's all a hoax. One of those things cleverly invented on the internet. But here's the thing, the article could have been true, don't you think? You really thought when I was reading it out that Ruth Smithers, the beloved wife of the good reverend, had written that. Although it's a caricature of the Christian view of sex, it does sound like the way the world outside thinks we Christians view sex. Dirty, 
a necessary evil, shameful. And even if that excerpt of that newsletter is just a caricature, it is just a joke, the, the Christian view of sex is strikingly different to the anything-goes approach that's typical of our culture. I mean, let me summarize. Just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the idea of sexual immorality. We noted not only the Bible's exhortation to flee sexual immorality, we also discovered that that term sexual immorality, literally the, the word is porneia, where we get our word pornography from, is a kind of catch-all phrase that includes all forms of sex outside lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. So that sex before marriage is immorality, sex with someone whom you're not married to is immorality, pornography is immorality, and so on. And of course, if you claim to be Christian and you're involved in any of these things, the scriptures indicate that you're living outside God's intentions for sexual expression and you should stop right now. And if you need help to stop right now, then we'd love to help you with that. And if you know somebody who's Christian or claims to be Christian and who's sleeping with someone they're not married to, then you lovingly and firmly need to ask them to stop because it's not just my job or Bruce's job to do that. It's the responsibility of the whole Christian community to humbly and gently help each other in this area. Of course, if you're not yet a Christian, I'm not applying this stuff to you. Like It's not the church's job to judge those who are not Christian. Although I would encourage you as humbly and respectfully as I can to live this part of your life in accordance with God's design for sex because I genuinely believe that will work out the best for you. I think we disregard the designer's intention for our lives at our own peril. And I realize that even just reminding us of the Scripture's insistence to flee sexual immorality doesn't just sound negative, but it basically sounds like I'm, I'm still arguing that the earth is flat. It's an outdated view. I'm not in tune with modern society. But putting all that to one side, for the rest of this morning, I want to remind us, show us, why the Christian view of sex is actually the most positive view of all. I know the world thinks we Christians are pretty negative about sex. I want to show you that Christianity is about as positive about sex as you can get. And today we're going to see that means that sex needs marriage. It also means that marriage needs sex. Sex needs marriage. Marriage needs sex. So firstly then for today, sex needs marriage. And we see this from the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 7 that Mitch read out to us. The Apostle Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's in inverted commas. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So you look at those verses and it, it seems like in Corinth, some of the Christians there had written in an earlier correspondence with the Apostle Paul and said, look, it's good or it's better not to have sex, don't you think? I mean, literally that first line reads, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. It can also be translated, it's better for a man not to marry. However you want to put it, the basic sentiment is the same, isn't it? It's a bit like the Ruth Smithers view of sex, which effectively says, you know what, we're better off without it. And you might find it kind of surprising that there is a group within the Corinthian church that think this way, that sex is negative or that it's sinful, when we just read in chapter 6 about a significant other group amongst the Corinthian Christians who were visiting prostitutes. 
and basically had no problem with any kind of sexual expression. You know, in chapter 6, there's a bit of a 21st century anything goes kind of vibe. At the start of chapter 7 here, there's almost the opposite, a Smithian, Victorian, prudish kind of vibe that says it's better to not even touch. Now, if the Christian view is actually negative about sex, you would expect the Apostle Paul at this stage to agree with the Corinthians. He'd have to agree, wouldn't he? Right here, at this precise point, he'd have to say, you know what, you're right. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations. It is good for a man not to marry. It is better not to touch. But he doesn't say that at all. The antidote to kind of the rampant immorality in that culture and in our culture, for that matter, is not to deny sex, it's not to outlaw sex, it's not to diminish sex, it's to redeem it, it's to uplift it, it's to place it in the context for which it was originally designed by God, the context of marriage. Each man should have his own wife and have sex with her, and each woman her own husband and have sex with him. In other words, sex needs marriage. I was a student uh, back in the day, and, uh, and I'm not quite sure why this was, but I used to like hanging around Newtown back in the day. And one day I saw this uh, awesome black leather motorcycle jacket in a second-hand shop in Newtown. I thought it was great. It was in a really good condition. It, it looked pretty bad. You know, you slip it on and you, you feel like the Terminator or something like that. I thought that was funny, but anyway... So uh, I paid a couple of hundred bucks for this uh, fantastic jacket. But the problem with motorcycle jackets, and I didn't know this beforehand, is that they're only really comfortable when you're in the I'm riding, riding a motorcycle kind of position. It's not very easy to move your arms. And so I only ever wore this great jacket that I paid $200 for about three times. And I eventually took it to cash converters, which was like an early version of eBay, except it was like a real shop uh, and they're criminals there. Uh, and they would only give me $30. And foolishly, I took it. I traded in something that was really valuable way too cheaply. I mean, this jacket was worthy of Hollywood. <laughs> I gave it away at Hornsby for 30 bucks. You know, things that have a value, they need a context that protects and values, not a context that somehow cheapens. And that's why we think the Christian view that sex needs a marriage between a man and a woman is a positive thing because it's the, the only context suitable for something of such extreme value. You think saying sex needs marriage is a limiting thing. I'm saying it uplifts and it values this wonderful, beautiful, enjoyable and precious thing that God has made and that he has given us, which is called sex. Verse 2, the Apostle Paul seems to um, say somewhat kind of clinically and unromantically that marriage is the thing that will kind of curb our sexual immorality, which is what I've been saying all along, really, that sex needs marriage. That's the context. But I don't think that's the only reason for getting married. I don't think the Apostle Paul thinks it's the only benefit of getting married. And so I guess what I'm saying is that to effectively argue that the Christian faith is so positive about sex, I need to at least remind us of why marriage is so positive if that is the context where sex 
is to be enjoyed. So just a couple of reasons by way of a reminder why marriage is good. You know, in the very first instance or mention of marriage in the Scriptures, which is Genesis chapter 2, like page 2 of the Bible, marriage is seen as the solution to the loneliness of the first man. And whether you understand those early chapters of Genesis as literal or figurative or somewhere in between, it's clear that none of the animals provided suitable company for Adam. And you can just imagine him standing there with all the animals walking before him and he gives them names. Like imagine what he thought about the giraffe. Wow, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Very handy for getting to those kind of hard-to-reach places as well. But rubbish to talk to. You can imagine chimpanzee walking along and Adam thinks, ah, you look a bit more like me but actually quite a bit more hairy. Come to think of it, I'm going to spend half my life with a dustbuster cleaning up after you. Then the zebra trots along. He goes, wow, is that thing black with white stripes or white with black stripes? Hard to tell, but man, there's something for everyone with you. Oh, hang on, there isn't everyone. There isn't even anyone. There's just me. And Genesis 2 says it was not good for the man to be alone. And so the union between the first man and the first woman is at its heart about companionship. And that's partly why the Christian view of sex, I think, is so positive. Because the person with whom you unite, you unite as one flesh in sex is not just someone who looks hot. It's not just someone you find sexy. It's someone you are closer to than any other person in the universe. Someone different to you as different as man is from woman, but someone with whom you are so completely vulnerable, someone with whom you share everything, someone who is your best friend and soulmate. As Christians, we see sex as not just a physical activity, you know, some kind of romantic aerobics. We don't see it as just some kind of primitive appetite or urge but as a deep and beautiful and profound thing, so that when man and woman, husband and wife, join together in sex, it's not just union, it's almost a reunion, where the two become the one from which they first came. And that is so profound and so deep and marvellous that it's really got to be a soulmate thing, not just a playmate thing. I mean, how can you share that that extraordinary level of vulnerability and depth and profundity and not share your grocery bills or your bank account or every part of your life together. Further, um, Christians also see marriage as one context, not the only, but uh, one context where people are refined, where we're made better versions of ourselves because that constant community of marriage means we cannot carry on just thinking about ourselves for very long before it all breaks down. Our world often portrays uh, marriage as a real bind where you lose your freedom and sex as the place as a, or the means to my own individual self-fulfillment. So putting them together seems incongruous. Why would you confine the very thing that is all about my personal self-fulfillment, sex, it's all about me, to a place where you lose your freedom in marriage, which is all about my spouse? But as Christians, we see that in all of marriage, as well as in sex within marriage, we become refined and better versions of ourselves when we think of others other than ourselves. 
In other words, in both marriage generally and in sex within marriage, we learn to sacrifice our own interests for the sake of putting the other first. And that not only refines us as people and as Christians, it also means that marriage is the ideal context for sex. Because it just can't be a grab for self-absorbed pleasure or fulfilment. Just like the rest of marriage, it's something that seeks the good of the other. And when things work well, and we all know that things don't always work well, both partners in sex and life are seeking the good of the other rather than their own good, you have mutual service, and that brings mutual fulfilment. It doesn't always work out that way, but I hope you can see how the two, sex and marriage, fit together so well. And uh, look, there are many other reasons, aren't there? Why sex within the nurturing, valuing context of lifelong marriage between a man and a woman is positive. Despite the kind of pessimism there is in our society about this understanding of marriage, it actually leads to happiness by and large. According to some studies that are mentioned in that Tim Keller book, that is most people in most marriages are actually happy and those studies even show us that those who aren't happy right now become happy within a few years. And I hope that's an encouragement to stick with it and to get help if you feel unhappy now rather than bailing out. There is uh, an all-in-ness all to marriage, isn't there? And I'll stay with you even as we get less sexy. Even when you wound my heart, even when we're finding it tough, provides a safety and a freedom in sex and in life that can't be guaranteed when there's just an easy way out. And there's lots of other things we could say, but that's a start, I think, on why it is that when we say sex needs marriage really is the most positive statement. Now, that's not the only thing, of course, that needs to be said. Uh, Sex does need a marriage to fit within God's design But secondly for today, marriage needs sex, or intimacy at least. And that's where the Apostle goes in the next couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 7. Listen to this. He says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now let me tell you, if you have ever thought that the Bible is anti-sex, this passage might strike you because it essentially tells married couples to have sex and to have sex often and to only stop for a short period of time and then only for prayer in verse 5. And uh, as striking as it is to modern ears, it was just as striking to the ancient ears. You see, in our culture, we think that our bodies belong to us as individuals, and should be used for our own self-fulfillment and self-expression. In the Corinthian culture, and in many cultures since, wives were thought of as little more than air-producing property of their husbands. But you have a look at verse 3. It tells husbands they have a duty. They have a marital duty to give sexual fulfillment to their wives. And then it even says this. This is remarkable. It says husbands don't have authority over their own bodies, but they actually yield them to their wives. In other words, a husband's body doesn't just belong to him. 
It belongs to his wife and should be given to her for her sexual fulfillment. And the same works in reverse as wives fulfill their marital duty to their husbands, giving their bodies over for their husband's sake and fulfillment. Now listen, I am painfully alert and aware that it would be possible for some men and some women perhaps to twist these verses, maybe even using them, to violently coerce their spouses into sex or other things. And though much more, I suspect, will be said about this later on in the year, my brothers, these hands God has given us are meant to pray. And they're meant to protect the, those beautiful human beings God has put into our care. I think it is difficult to imagine any circumstances other than self-defense where it is appropriate to use our hands as fists or our words as if they were fists but against our wives and our children my goodness and if that's you I want you to know you're not okay and we are not okay with you and you need help and you need to change so we are alert uh, painfully so to those dangers but I want to say Let not that alertness detract from the striking instruction it gives us here to married people to give sexual fulfillment and pleasure to their spouses. I mean, it's about giving, right? It's not about taking. But it is about giving. And what many of us who are married or have been married know to be true is that when you give to the other in sex, you build that deep friendship with your spouse. And you know that sex will help you know if something's not right in the relationship. It's going to force you to deal with things that need resolution. In that way, it can be confronting. And it can also be restorative. Just that bond of pleasure that sex brings helps you grow that small community that is your marriage. And in the same way that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we renew our covenant relationship with Christ, in sex we renew the covenant commitment and promises that we made when we were first married. Now that's just a lot of little ways to say that not only does sex need marriage, but marriage needs sex. And you may not have thought about this before, but when when sex is practiced, I was going to say sex, I'm like, what has a brass instrument got to do with anything? You may not have thought about this before, but when sex is practiced according to the Apostle's instructions here, when each spouse seeks the betterment of the other spouse, you have a little model of the gospel of Jesus in operation. And this is true even if your spouse is not a believer. Because you can put aside your own interests for the good of the other, not standing on your own rights, but seeking the best of the other not primarily because they're lovely at that point, though they may be, but because you've promised to love them. Isn't that just like what God has done for us in the gospel, sending Jesus to live among us and then to die for us, seeking our best, sacrificing his body on our behalf, not because we were lovely at the time. I mean, we had rejected him, but because he had settled in his heart that he would do so. Sex needs marriage. Marriage needs sex, and when it is practiced according to God's design manual, we can even learn about the love of God for us at the same time as we love our spouses. 
Now, there is, uh, it seems to me, no point talking about all this sort of stuff if we don't get practical to some degree at some point. Um, Firstly, if you're an unmarried person here, I still think it's worth thinking about marriage and sex because that will help you love and serve your married fellow Christians better in the same way that next week married people really need to hear about singleness so they can love their single fellow Christians better. It's also worth being reminded about marriage so that you neither want it too much or want it too little. If you just desire marriage greatly because you think it'll be a means to self-fulfillment in the sexual realm but also in other ways or that somehow it's going to solve all your problems, then it's worth seeing that marriage is really about fulfilling another person, not fulfilling yourself. And it does bring its own share of problems. So be careful of desiring it too much, especially for the wrong reason. On the other hand, you might have no desire for marriage at all because you think it'll limit your freedom. And in that case, I think you need to see that marriage is a gift from God. It's one of the ways that he builds community. It's one of the ways he addresses human longings. It's one of the ways he shapes us into more giving and less self-interested people. So don't think too little of it, especially for the wrong reason. For all of us, I hope this is a reminder of the goodness of God, his great generosity, and generally how he has our best interests at heart. Now, for those people who are married, you know, the kind of application, the practical application seems obvious, doesn't it? Just have sex, you know, just do it, often. But uh, the truth is, for many of us, many of us, that's actually harder than it sounds, for some of us, the thought of having sex with our spouse, it's just a dreaded thought because, you know, it just throws unresolved issues into sharp relief. And can I say, if that is you, I really urge you to take some active steps in terms of talking to someone. Uh, it could be one of the ministry staff, it could be a trusted friend, it could be a good marriage counsellor. Love to help you in this way. And, it, and if you need help, why don't you write that on your Connect card Pop it in the connect bags as they come around and um, it'll be dealt with both pastorally and confidentially. I really think it's worth giving it a crack rather than giving up on your marriage. As difficult as giving it a crack might be. For others who may not have uh, such significant roadblocks to intimacy that might require counselling and the like, we might just find that our interest in sex has kind of faded a bit. You know, work is really busy Uh, The kids get sick, or they make me feel sick, or just tired. You know, the home needs repairs. And besides, I've got Netflix now, you know? (laughs) Who needs to have sex when I can watch the best TV on demand? But you know, the thing is that uh, not having sex, unless you really feel up for it, is that you'll actually feel up for it less and less and less. If sex is the thing that binds you together with your spouse and builds that little community and you know, renews that covenant relationship, the less sex you have, the less you'll feel like having. And that really will develop into a downward spiral because marriage needs sex. So having uh, made that kind of caveat already uh, about coercion and violence, you know, I think it's true that spouses can give love and pleasure to one another even when they might not be right in the zone. You know, unlike uh, Ruth Smithers' invented advice, feigned illnesses and pretend sleepiness and headaches and arguments and nagging and bickering aren't the best friends of either partner. 
Your best friend is your spouse. And if you wait until both of you feel like 100% in the mood, it might be a long time between drinks. Now, those who are married, those who have been married, knows that uh, there's lots that we can do to help put ourselves and our spouses in the right mood for this kind of thing. But it's probably not going to happen without thoughtfulness. Uh, let me say to the husbands, we need to do better at appreciating all the good things about our wives more often. Noticing things, helping with things, giving compliments, little acts of thoughtfulness will actually make you look, this is weird, right, but it's true, it'll actually make you look more attractive in your wife's eyes than you are. You may not look like Brad Pitt. Let me tell you, you will look a lot less like Jack Nicholson. So, uh, husbands, ask your wives. And wives... Ask your husbands. I know this sounds weird, but for many couples, spontaneous sex requires lots of planning, doesn't it? Because you, you, you've got to create both a, uh, a physical and a, like an emotional or relational environment that's conducive to lovemaking. Now, some American pastors give their congregations challenges like having sex for 30 days in a row, and you'll be relieved. I'm not going to do that, and I'm certainly not going to check up on you. But... Uh, You know what I will encourage? I will encourage you to review your schedule and to make adjustments so there is emotional and relational space to allow intimacy to flourish. Some of us, uh, we just have, we live with too many attachments to our parents and our own marriages suffer because we've never really left father and mother to start the new family in marriage. Your spouse needs to take priority over your parents. And some of us here, We live with too many attachments to our own children. Now, you can't leave your kids in the same way as you leave your parents. But ask yourself the question, am I actually really trying to live through my kids? Do they really need to play three instruments, four sports, and all the rest of the co-curricular stuff? I mean, they're only five years old, right? It's ridiculous. You think you're giving your kids the best of every opportunity. I think you're giving your kids the best of, opportun- of every opportunity if you're giving your marriage every opportunity to flourish and thrive. If I were to ask your spouse whether the kids' schedule of programs is killing your love life, would you feel uncomfortable? What about work? If I were to ask your spouse whether your work life is killing your love life, would you feel uncomfortable? You know, our marriages, they really are important enough that we might need to make significant adjustments to our schedule, to the pattern of family life for them to flourish. And without being ridiculous, uh, you know, as spouses, we ought to take an interest. I mean, as people, but as spouses particularly, we ought to take an interest in our own personal health and kind of appearance and habits and manners of speaking and behaving so that we can continue to remain as attractive as possible to our marriage partner, rather than just presuming upon them. And you know, I'm sure there are many more things you could say, and I hope you do start to say them, uh, over coffee just at morning tea time, and then during the weekend and onwards. But I do want to finish where we started, not with Ruth Smithers and her terrible advice, but with the Apostle Paul. When the Corinthians say, you know what, it's better not to touch, he says, actually, no. The best sex is between husbands and wives, where they seek the good of the other, where they give their bodies to one another for the good of one another. 
And friends, I commend that view to us all, regardless of your situation in life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I do, on Mother's Day especially, want to pray for your blessing over uh, all the families, but particularly all the marriages in our fellowship here. Uh, We know that marriage is not easy, and yet it is good. And Father, just today as we've seen that sex needs marriage, we've also seen that marriage needs sex and intimacy and affection. I pray for us all that we would take on board your scriptures teaching about sex because it really does have our best interests at heart. But I pray particularly for the marriages that you'd let them be places where there's enough emotional, relational, physical space for intimacy to flourish. That uh, husbands and wives might give to one another and strengthen those relationships and that those relationships might honour you. In whose name we pray. Amen. Folks, we're going to um, respond by singing. Uh, as we've said over the past few weeks, is if there's anything you know, you'd like to say, if there's help that you would like to get, then please just jot that down on a Connect card and pop that in the collection bags as they come around now. As I said, they'll be treated both pastorally and confidentially.